My name is Raul Perez. I'm the senior associate pastor here. I have the privilege of uh, bringing the word to you this morning, uh, as well as reading it. Uh, today, during the, the sermon, I'm going to be uh, taking moments uh, to do what's called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina is a, a practice developed by St. Ignatius, uh, and it means the divine reading. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. And the intention behind the divine reading is that we would pause long enough to really hear it, to let it enter us, and perhaps imagine ourselves entering the narrative. So this morning, at our first of the three Lectio readings, it'll be the same text read over and over and over. So I'm going to prompt you a little differently each time. But if you would, if you're so open to it, I'd invite you to close your eyes, not focus on the, the scripture on, on the screen, but rather just listen to my voice. Focus on the story. And let something, if God's going to let something come up, just let it come up. And after the reading, jot it down in your bulletin. But hear the word of the Lord. From Genesis 28, verses 10 through 17. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, He stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The word of the Lord. So if the Lord has brought up anything from that story, I would encourage you to just jot it down. Today we are in the Spirit, Soul, Body series. This is a series that Pastor Richard has, it's been on his heart for a long time 
and he's done a lot of work to, to prepare, and he's actually directed, he's not very, altogether always very directive of where we, he would like us to go, but in this series, he's given us some direction, so I'm thankful for Pastor Richard and his work uh, and the structure uh, which he's provided to us even this morning. Uh, when I heard the sermon last week uh, and saw his diagram, which he's been showing the staff for many weeks, but I just, I just, for some reason, I saw it a little different this time because this last week he specifically talked about the Spirit. So quickly, the Spirit of God is, uh, uh, the Spirit in us is enlivened by the Spirit of God. And when our Spirit is enlivened, then our Spirit is connected to the will of God. And we are more readily able to understand God's desires for us and his will for our life. Now, our soul, they, may, they, may, they sound similar. So our soul is really what you would call our will, our desires, perhaps our character, which is uh, driven by the spirit in us. Or it can be self-driven. And that's where we play it out in our body. So we're... Where uh, Pastor Richard made a differentiation last week, he said, you know, the spirit in us can be dead. And if the spirit in us is dead, then it is not driving our soul. Actually, our soul and our bodies are striving to make meaning out of life because we have no well of the spirit in us to be driving us. So when he said that, when he talked about the spirit being dead in us, this is what I envisioned. I envisioned a donut. I envisioned, I envisioned that the cake of this donut is like the body, and like the frosting is like our soul. And it is this out of which we are trying to make meaning out of life when our spirit is dead. Now, don't get me wrong, because the carnal life, the carnal life tastes good, right? Right? And it is good, but only for so long. See, now you understand why we've given you donut holes out there. We, we secretly are calling them spirit holes. So you can fill your life. No, no, don't. Don't believe me. I'm still chewing this donut. See, the carnal life, the life that our soul and our bodies seek to make purpose out of without the spirit of God truly just like a donut it's just empty calories it's dissatisfaction and it's the avoidance of our true identity here's our main point this morning true identity is revealed through encounters with the triune God true identity is revealed through encounters with the triune God True identity, calling, purpose. These are all popular words used in the church to attempt to get at a sense of what Christians know is true, but they don't always know how to capture it. It is this conviction that life is not random, arbitrary, or meaningless, that we were created with intentionality, that we are known and that we are even beloved by our creator. But if someone were to ask you, 
what is your true identity? Would you be able to answer that question? We are convinced that there is something more filling for us than a donut. But could you say to a skeptical and existential world just what that is? Here's what I believe. I believe we cannot think our way to purpose. We cannot intellectualize that which was intended to be experienced. If we want to know our true identities, we must let go of our desire to understand and rather hope to be encountered by God. Being encountered by God, the one whose image we are made in, is like looking into a mirror and seeing God's reflection in us. Richard Rohr says in The Divine Dance, that true mirroring only needs to be received and recognized once. And once is enough to change you forever. But it deepens if we gaze steadily and make it a habit, as James says. This is at the heart of all prayer, says Roar. Encounters. Seeing experiencing God in ourselves. Encounters are a free gift from God that one must humbly receive. But humbly receiving gifts we did not earn is very unnatural to us. It's unnatural to our souls. I grew up with phrases like this. Tell me if you recognize them. No one ever gave me anything. I had to go out and get it. Or, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Did that that get put on any of you all too? The inference is this. And this is like you should too. You need to earn your place in this world. You need to earn respect. You need to earn love. Because nothing is freely given. Does that hit home with anybody? Is this the tape your soul plays over and over in you? Work, 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 earn, earn, earn. The inference being, you are nobody. And if you want to be somebody, if you want to be great, you have to earn it. And maybe you have to even take it. I wonder if this is the message that Jacob heard as well. Earn, earn, fight to be somebody. Take your identity. This is, this is what we're all seeking, right? An identity. A core identity. And this is the good news of the gospel. The simple good news. You have a core identity In Christ. You have a core identity in Christ. This statement isn't incidental or trivial, it's foundational. The very first ingredient in becoming the person God had in mind when God made you, and when God made Jacob. 
Our spiritual identity can never be earned, only received. And learning to receive and believe that identity is today's topic. We will humbly explore these three realities that posture us before God to be encountered by God and to see what he wants to do in and through who he's made us to be. To help us, to help us understand these three realities, we will move through the life of Jacob in Scripture. But to help us, to help us, you, not just hear, hear me, but to potentially set you up to be encountered by God this morning. We are going to lean into Lectio Divina. At the end of each point, we'll have a reading. When those time, times come, I'll, I'll prompt you, and all you need to do is listen. Allow yourself to enter the narrative and be open to God encountering you. Reality one, behavior can contradict identity. Behavior can contradict identity. The first thing we read about Jacob is actually a promise from God. God says to his mother, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The older, Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. Jacob was chosen by God to be the heir through which God would maintain the promise that he made to Jacob's grandpa, Abraham, and his father, Isaac. A promise to bless with children, land, authority, and most of all, God's presence no matter what. Jacob was given an identity in God, given to him even before he was born. Yet, despite this, Jacob is found always trying to earn what God wants to freely give him. Jacob settles for a donut-filled life rather than a spirit-filled life. So what did he do? What did he do? Contrary to his identity... First, Jacob turns to thievery. One day when Jacob uh, was at home cooking a stew, his twin brother came in from hunting and was, was utterly exhausted. Esau demanded of Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stuff. I'm famished. Jacob, quick and conniving, says to Esau, first sell me your birthright. Birthright, meaning all the inheritance, control of the family when dad dies, and the blessing of the firstborn, that birthright doesn't feel like a fair trade. The birthright, this is the same birthright that God told Rebekah that he was going to give to Jacob, the younger. I'm wondering, did Rebekah ever tell Jacob what God said? Because scripture says it God just spoke to Rebekah. Did Rebekah even ever tell this to Isaac? Jacob is about to steal what God had freely given him in the first place. 
Esau responds, look, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me? And after swearing to give it to Jacob, Jacob serves Esau, who eats, drinks, and leaves. And from that point forward, Scripture says that Esau despised his birthright. Jacob takes advantage of his brother and steals what is already his. Next, contradictory to his identity, Jacob turns to lying. When Isaac was very old and ready to die, he wanted to give his final blessing to his oldest son, Esau. So he requests his son go hunting, prepare a special meal, and then Isaac will bless Jacob. Surprisingly enough, it's Rebekah, Isaac's wife, who hears what Isaac is about to do, and she pulls Jacob into a plan to deceive Isaac. So he, Jacob, will get the blessing and not Esau. Isaac, who had become blind in his old age, gets taken advantage of by Jacob, who dresses up to smell and to feel like Esau. When Isaac questions whether this is truly Esau, Jacob says, I am your firstborn. Give me your blessing. He lies, and Isaac gives him the blessing of the firstborn, And when Esau learns about this, he's crushed, outright weeping. And when that weeping is over, a grudge settles in his heart. And he vows that he's going to kill his brother, who had just a second time taken what was his. And Rebecca, catching wind of this grudge in her oldest son, she helps Jacob, her younger son, get prepared to flee from the family And so Jacob goes in for one last blessing from his father, who this time knows it's Jacob. And Isaac gives him the true blessing of the firstborn. And from that time on, Jacob runs to his uncle Laban's house in Haran. Jacob ended up where he started, having obtained the birthright that God had freely given to him. But the route he took made him steal lie, and flee from his family. In modern terms, we would say that Jacob learned the hard way. Can you resonate with that? (laughs) St. Paul can, and he says it here, and he laments it in Romans 7. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Perhaps he neglects the spirit alive in him at that moment. Hmm? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the donut-filled, carnal life-seeking purpose. When our spirits are dead in us, our spirits, the part of us that is connected to God and God's will for our lives, then it is left to our soul and our bodies to find a purpose to make meaning. Paul is describing giving in to temptation, the temptation to live contrary to God's law, and, in effect, to live by our own laws, to live according to our own ways, to make ourselves our own God, and to make our own meaning. If our spirits are dead in us, 
then this is the natural course our lives will take. Expect it. Expect it. This is the state Jacob is in as he flees his family and is encountered by God at the, on the night of that dream. True identity is revealed through encounters with the triune God. So I'm going to read our passage again now, and I want you to imagine that you, like Jacob, come to this place, this place called Bethel. That's where he laid his head. Bethel, which means the house of God. And you've come here having acted counter to who you truly are. You've come to this place, and you've hurt your family, and you've been hurt by them. And despite that pain, despite what that pain is telling you, you take control of your own fate, and now you're on the run. You're on the run from your family. I invite you to close your eyes, if you will, and imagine Jacob's dream is the dream you're having. How does God encounter you? Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Your descendants will be like the dust on the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Write down anything that sticks out to you. From this encounter, Jacob now becomes aware of God's presence with him. Perhaps this was a moment of true mirroring, like Roar talked about. Jacob was changed after this encounter, reconciled to God, to use Pastor Richard's language from last week. He had a ways to go before he was saved and had his true identity revealed to him. And one of the significant trials that Jacob would face and he needed to go through was to realize that his behavior up to this point did not negate his identity that God was now exposing him to. So that's reality too. Behavior doesn't negate 
identity. Jacob was so impacted by this dream at at Bethel that he makes his best effort to lean into the identity God was revealing to him. He makes a vow. I say best effort because Jacob makes a conditional commitment to God, an if-then statement. He says this to God. We didn't read this today, uh, but this is essentially what he says after he wakes up from the dream. He says, if God will take care of all my needs, safety, food, clothing, then I will make Yahweh my God. I'll worship him and I'll give him 10% of all that I have. It's pretty conditional, right? God has to really show up before, <laughs> before Jacob will return trust to God. And I know this might feel like a oh ye of little faith kind of step for one of the heroes of our faith, right? But here's the thing. Jacob was willing to be less of who he was shown how to be and begin to open to who God says that he was. Listen to that again. Jacob was willing to be less of who he was shown how to be and began to be open to who God said that he was. Willing to be less than he was shown how to be. We all come from family systems, right, that show us how to be whether it be natural, adoptive, blended families, large, small, rich, poor, interracial, multi-generational, multilingual, in varying degrees of good and bad and ugly. Whether we are thankful, hurt, or indifferent to our families, we've all been shaped by them. And all families have skeletons in their closets. And undealt with, These skeletons get passed down through the generations. This is Jacob's story too. Maybe listen with new ears to Jacob's history. So his grandmother, Sarai, Sarah, at one point in her life she was barren. And so she had this idea, why don't I give my servant to my husband? And so the servant conceives... Hagar, and she has a son, Ishmael. Well, Sarah becomes bitter, and so she casts out, she casts out Hagar and Ishmael to the desert land that they're in, and they almost die, but God saves them, has compassion upon them, and returns them. And upon returning, at some point in the future, uh, Sarah is able to conceive, and so she has a son, Isaac, and I'm sure this blended family had some tension to it, because Ishmael was actually the true firstborn son, but he's not going to be given the rights of a firstborn son. Instead, it is Isaac. And a few years on from there, Isaac being between 8 and 12, his father, Abraham, takes him on a walk loads him down with wood, and says, we're going to have a sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice, Isaac says. Abraham says, God will provide. So they make it to the top of the mountain. He wraps up, binds Isaac, and lays him on the altar, ready to kill him when God stops him. I wonder how Isaac experienced that. Did he see God intervene, or did all of a sudden, Dad stop? There's an interesting 
lack of detail in that story because after the, Isaac is freed, the ram is sacrificed in his place, it says that Abraham comes down the mountain and returns to the servants. Where's Isaac? Why didn't Isaac return with Abraham? My imagination says he runs because he doesn't show up back in Scripture for another 15 or 20 years down the road. Why didn't Isaac return with Abraham? Fear? What was it? And I wonder if Isaac, when he had his own sons, did he tell them these stories? Did he tell them about Grandma Sarah's actions? Did he tell them about how, you know, Grandpa almost sacrificed me once? I don't know. And then, uh, like the story we just read, we hear that Rebecca deceives her husband and uses her son Jacob kind of as a pawn in that whole scheme. Yes, Jacob is the one that gets blessed, but Jacob is also the one that speaks and deceives his father. And the consequence from that is that Esau considers killing Jacob, his own brother, and I wonder if he's thinking, well, Grandpa Abraham tried to kill, you know, Dad once. Maybe I can try and kill my brother. And so Jacob decides to run from his family, perhaps just like his father Isaac ran from his family. I know I'm focusing on all the bad stuff here because there's a lot of good stuff in those stories, so I, I get that. But I guess I'm just trying to pique your, your imagination. Have you ever considered how characters in the Bible have real histories, real traumas, and real fallout from their own decisions, much like we do. You can see from this, from Jacob's family history, what Jacob was shown how to be. He was shown how to be a survivor. I mean, a family history with a desperate love triangle, attempted murder in God's name, running from the family, manipulation at the hands of the mother. No wonder Jacob leans into tactics like stealing and lying and fleeing. He's using coping mechanisms like any survivor would with his history and his situation. So with that, here's the thing about Jacob's vow. Even though he makes a conditional if then vow to God, he takes the first steps to believing that his previous behavior does not negate his true identity. I think he chooses to believe he's not hopeless and lost because this holy God his grandpa and father told him about had finally encountered him, met him face to face. God is with him. And will even watch over him. God promises to watch over him and keep him safe like no one in his family had. God would not use him or coerce him. Just love him. Jacob's vow is not some weaselly attempt to game God like he had done in past relationships. No, Jacob's vow is the full-hearted attempt of someone in process of changing their life. And this is how it looks. It's what he can muster at this point. He is showing he believes transformation is possible. 
and that his behavior is not the final word on his identity. And here's the application for us. Here's what Jacob teaches us. That you are not defined by your family of origin and past behavior. You are not defined by your family of origin or past behavior. You have a core identity, and that core identity is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus died and forgave your sins, cleansing you inside and out so that his spirit could dwell in you. And when his spirit fills you, he brings to life your spirit, the place of your identity and the purpose of your life now changes. Your purpose becomes to please the Lord with all of who you are and all of what you've been made to do. Your spirit now alive begins to drive your soul, which is your will and desires and your character. So now the spirit in you, enlivened by the spirit of God, is now influencing your soul and what you want and what you want to do, and who you want to be. And that, the spirit and your soul is now partnered with your body as one to serve God. All of you can be transformed. And in truth, your family can be transformed as well. And even if they're not in a place to want to change or heal right now, perhaps you are And God will still call you in the middle of the mess. Amen? In the middle of the mess. God can break into and heal any situation, any situation, for nothing is impossible for God to make new. True identity is revealed through encounters with the triune God. Here our passage one last time here. Listen with the ears of one in process of transformation. What is God inviting you to? Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
This is my experience too. This is my testimony. Recently in November, I shared this last sermon, and I'll just share it quickly again, that God healed me at the dunamis training from a generational sin that goes back to at least my grandpa. A belief that, I, that to be accepted and valued and even loved, I had to earn it. I needed to perform highly enough in the eyes of the world to earn their approval because no one would just give it to me. God showed me how that harmful seed was put into me and that I was passing it on to my sons. So God, through the prayers of others and a picture in prayer, he offered me an off-ramp. A chance to get out of the story I was in and get into God's narrative. And I was healed. I will claim that. I was healed of that generational sin. But I believe for that to, to truly take in me and for there to be lasting fruit from it, I need to be obedient to enter my brokenness and even be willing to be broken by God. For brokenness reveals one's true identity. And this is our last and third reality. Brokenness reveals one's true identity. I want you to consider Jesus uh, in whom we have our core identity. When he was falsely arrested and, and being falsely accused at his sham trial, Scripture says that Jesus was silent before his accusers. When Pharisees threatened him, accused him, smeared his name, and soldiers beat him, Jesus endured it. Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about Jesus, says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We know that, in fact, Jesus did speak up throughout all these trials, so what does it mean that Jesus was silent? What it means is that Jesus was obedient to being broken. He did, not, he did not oppose it. When Jesus was broken open before all of Jerusalem on the cross, his true identity shone through. The Roman soldier proclaimed, who was standing there, who had pierced Jesus, and he said this, surely this man was the son of God. It was through death and subsequent resurrection that the disciples truly believed and became the evangelizers of the truth. I had someone recently say to me, all truth is paradoxical. I haven't been able to test that yet, but uh, at least in this one thing, it seems to be true. Wholeness and true identity comes through brokenness. Jacob became a firsthand witness to this paradoxical truth a few decades after the dream. So he has this dream on the way to Uncle Laban's, and then he uh, is married to Leah and Rachel, and then stays there a few years longer, and then flees from that situation. And on the way, when he's leaving, he's going to meet his brother Esau, because Esau wants to meet him now. It's been 20 years and now Esau wants to meet. What does Esau want to meet about? What's going to happen at that meeting? This brother who had vowed to kill him. And Jacob had in some ways been hiding from. So what happens is that Jacob comes up with a plan. I'll send my brother. I'm a rich man now. I'll send my brother lots of gifts ahead of time. 
I'll send my, my family, my servants, all, everything. I'll send it forward and give him all these gifts to appease him so that when Jacob finally arrives last, hopefully Esau will not want to murder him anymore, and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll talk it out, hug it out. But here's what happens. After he had sent everybody forward, Jacob stays behind in a place called Jabok, and he sleeps there. But God came to Jacob as a man and wrestled him the whole night through. Jacob, remembering the last encounter and how much it had changed him, how hard he had worked, how confused he was at what was to come next, he wrestled God. In a seeming attempt to end the fight, God wrenches Jacob's hip out of place. He throws his body into incredible pain. But Jacob will not be detoured. Desperate for definition, Jacob cries, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that's when things get real. God counters him with this, totally unexpected. He says, what is your name? Hmm. God looks Jacob in the eyes. He looks you in your eyes. And he says, what is your name? What's your story? What is your identity? Is your name greatness? Is your name performance? Is your name isolated? Lonely? Is your name unloved? He talks to him and says, Is your name thief? Liar, runner, what is your name? He simply answers with, Jacob. And I believe that's when God breaks him. He breaks him from the inside out and shows him his brokenness, breaking him free from his old story. By this, God offers him an off-ramp to enter a new narrative. God says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome 20 years waiting. God finally encounters him and tells him who he is, and Jacob is ready to receive it. True identity is revealed through encounters with the triune God. He's ready because he's willing to be broken and to look at his brokenness. God encounters Jacob and simultaneously breaks him to make him new. He renames him Israel, affirming the new person he is and his true identity while breaking his pride and breaking him away from his past story. There's a great tension between reality two and reality three. I'm wondering if you caught it. Or maybe a better way to say it is, I'm wondering if you felt it in you as you were prepared to reject it. (laughs) This is what it is. So on the one hand, we're not defined by our family of origin and the hurt and the pain and the hardships we experience there. But Jesus demonstrates to us that being obedient to brokenness is the means to true identity. So how, do we, how are we not defined by one but need to submit to it on the other hand? 
The answer is yes and yes, and both and, unfortunately. It's my experience that people's callings are usually into the places where they have hurt and suffering and brokenness. For I think God delights in transforming our pain into healing for us and for others with the same hurt. And that's why scripture calls us to remember our past and be obedient to brokenness. For by facing our brokenness and being broken by God, our core identity in Christ and our true identity will shine through to a world desperate for meaning and purpose and hope. So be like Jacob or be like Israel and wrestle with God. Lean into these three realities so much that it brings you to a place of wrestling with God for who you truly are. Your past or current behavior can contradict your identity, yes, but your behavior will never negate it. And it is through brokenness your true identity will be revealed. And by this we will enter the spirit-filled life we will no longer be satisfied by eating donuts. Instead, we will hunger for what truly fills us, the bread of life. This is what the spirit-filled life looks like. For those who are hungry will be filled. So this morning... As we desire God, as we desire more than a donut-filled life, come and remember that you have been given a true identity. It is already yours. You may need to wrestle with God to understand it, to receive it, but it is already yours. So this morning we have these trays filled with pieces of gluten-free bread, Available for everybody. And I want you to come forward and remember who you are. Remember that you are Christ's. And remember that he has given you a unique and true identity for him to work through you in a unique and powerful way in this world. So in the same way we might remember our baptism, I want you to come forward Take a piece of bread and remember who you are and whose you are. Amen? Let's stand as we worship.